Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 149 of Impact Boom. My name's Mike Lepre. I'm the founder of Bertoni and a contributing editor here at Impact Boom. I'm passionate about utilizing design to create social impact. Today, we'll be speaking with JP Kuluan. JP is the co-founder of Uber Brands, a firm that helps owners elevate their brands to make them peerless, priceless, and profitable. He was previously executive vice president at Frederick Fakai & Co., a prestige salon and retail hair care business, and he served as brand director and global director of strategy at the multinational Procter & Gamble, and he was based in Germany, the US, Singapore, Hong Kong, and finally in New York. JP is a recognized brand builder with a 25 plus year track record of translating consumer insights into propositions that generate more than $1 billion in sales today. He is also a faculty member at NYU Stern School of Business and an advisory board member at the CFMM Master's Program of the Fashion Institute of Technology, both in New York City. He has co-authored Rethinking Prestige Branding, Secrets of the Uber Brands, with Wolfgang Schaefer, a reference book for those building premium brands across different industries. On today's podcast, we'll discuss the idea of Uber brands and what distinguishes them from their non-prestige counterparts, how social enterprises can leverage their aspirational missions to create growth, and JP will share what we can learn from businesses who are excelling at brand strategy. JP, thank you very much for joining us today. Hey, it's a pleasure, Mike. Now, to get things started, could you please share a bit about your background and what led you down the path of branding and strategy? Sure. Um, it wasn't very clear to me um, at the beginning. After my studies, which were in France, Portugal, UK, and Germany, I, um, you know, had done a lot of things, but I was a little I was a little bit at a loss about what to do for my professional career, and so. Um, really uh, uh, Procter & Gamble knocked on my door asking me whether I wanted to join them. And I said, hey, sure, why not? Actually, in order not to have to write too many applications and instead being able to do a long vacation to Australia before starting to work. So between the studies and work, I, I did a three-month trip through Australia uh, and figured I can always change companies later. And uh, there you go. You know, I stayed, uh, I think, 23 years with, with Procter & Gamble. I started in um, finance and then pretty quickly, you know, moved over um, to marketing because it seemed so much more exciting and interesting on that side of the conference table and the company. Over the years, obviously, you worked at Procter & Gamble for a long time, but you've also worked with uh, brands in different industries and at different stages of their journeys. So what are some of the common challenges you've seen brands experience and what tips can you offer on how to navigate through them? Sure. 
I've worked in the U.S., I've worked in Asia, India, actually I've stayed in Asia, India for a combined 15, 20, yeah, 15 years, I think. Um, and, and then I did global jobs, worked across household care, beauty, baby care, you name it. I can tell you some of the common challenges might seem very straightforward, but they kept being repeated, which is one, a lot of brands are not very clear um, as to what they actually have to offer, or they're not very differentiated in what they have to offer. I mean, often when I teach um, at NYU or even watch TV with my kids here or YouTube, I do the so-called video test. You know, we turn the sound off, we mute the sound, and I ask them, you know, what brand is this commercial about? And you often struggle, and, and sometimes you struggle even leaving the sound off. I mean, brands sometimes overlook that at the end of the day, they need to have a proposition that's relevant, that's exciting, that's hard or mind-opening, and that's different from what other people have. And they, they get either too far ahead of themselves in talking about stuff that um, when you meet the brand for the first time doesn't make sense to you uh, in a first-time encounter, or they simply are not even able to kind of articulate who are they, uh, are, what are they about, and why are they around. And so I would say, you know, that's one big thing that everyone working on a brand needs to make sure. You know, do you really, do you really make it clear what you're all about and why you're here? The second big thing that I um, see a lot, even among the most professional marketers, is that marketers get bored about their brand and their communication and their campaign in particular before the customers do. They change what they're talking about and how they're talking about their brand way before that message actually gets through to the average customer. And that might be driven by tons of organization changes, which often happen in big groups or simply impatience because you know your own message. You've seen your own video um, over and over. Um, you read your own blog posts and your own social media interactions and you get bored with it or you get worried that you're repetitive. But believe me, you know, to, for a message to get out there and to sink in and be understood um, it takes a while, and so the mistake is to pull the plug or, or to change your message too quickly. Yeah, fantastic. Um, a couple of really good good tips there, JP. In your book with Wolfgang, you introduce the idea of Uber brands. Now, what is an Uber brand, and why should a business strive to become one? Yeah, so Uber brands comes from German Uber, so it has nothing to do with the the taxi service um, <laughs> Uber. It's there to annoy a little bit the Anglo-Saxons who can't pronounce it, but really <laughs> the background is when Wolfgang and I were thinking about what to call these brands that we got very interested in, um, we were reminded a little bit of Nietzsche's philosophy. Nietzsche talks about the Übermensch. It's controversial and it's been abused historically, but what we extract or what, what we take from that, which is interesting, is that this concept of going above and beyond, which is what Uber means in German. And what we find is that these brands have in common that they want to be more than a good. They want to be more than a functional utilitarian benefit or service. They strive to do something bigger. 
to bring humanity forward, whether it's in the arts and philosophy, whether it's protecting the environment, uh, whether it's about a certain ideology that they think will somehow change or save the world. They all have this in common, and, and that's why we call them the Uber brands. Uber brands are about creating meaning beyond the material, you know, uh, being more than a car, a handbag, a vase, uh, a soft drink, you name it. To your question about, you know, why, why is that attractive? Why, why should brands be interested in that? When you are able to create more meaning with your proposition, then people have their heart in it. So if you're not just a, a soft drink, but you're a little magic potion that gives people wings, literally makes them Superman, okay, and makes them, gives them the energy and the, the courage to jump out of the sky or do crazy stunts on their bikes or disco party through the night, you've got a different kind of following than if you're just a refreshing drink. And I, I think you know who I'm talking about, you know, Red Bull. You know, if you help people understand that it's important to protect the environment that you discover in their products and you show them to some extent the way by, you know, um, advocating building back dams or even protesting against making national monuments smaller and your, your Patagonia, then people buy more than a sweater. They buy into uh, an ideology believes values. And so they have more heart in it. They become more loyal. They're also less focused on price because these things are often priceless, as we say. And so you've got more flexibility in terms of margin that you can put against funding those causes, pay your people decently, growing your business. People are more engaged with you. So they spread the word more uh, and word of mouth is this very strong advertisement. In fact, it's not even perceived as advertisement and so creates great trial for your brand and awareness. It also creates more flexibility for your brand equity in that a brand like, you know, Red Bull or Patagonia or Ben & Jerry's or Brunello Cuccinelli and all these brands we talk about in our book, they can open a hotel, they can make sweaters, they can make surfboards, they can brew beer, which is now true for Patagonia, for example. And the stretch can hold quite a bit because they're about more than just having made sweaters. If Nordica or, you know, Levi's was making beer tomorrow, um, it might be more difficult because there's less meaning and less broad meaning in that brand. Um, so it opens up possibilities from a brand architecture um, side as well. And then finally, one interesting aspect that I come across quite a bit is people become more forgiving. They think about you in a more human way. And so if you trip and you make mistakes, so for example, your method laundry detergent and you try to use ocean plastic and that ocean plastic is brittle and you know early bottles of your hand soap in that plastic leak, then instead of getting all upset um, on, on social media, People actually exchange on how to help you, how they refill the stuff into glass and give you tips of where it's leaking and how you might, you know, um, change the design, which this kind of kindness doesn't happen with a product that is perceived as just industrial 
and doesn't have any further meaning to people. Yeah, some, uh, some great insights there, JP. In your book, you talk about the concept of prestige as the human need for distinction and aspiration. Social enterprise has an advantage over regular business because of the aspirational mission and values that are inherent within the business model. How can social enterprises leverage this advantage to increase sales while making sure they don't appear as trying to guilt the consumer into making a purchase? I think you're right. I mean, social enterprises uh, have a big advantage. When we talk about Uber brands, we talk about mission, myth, and truth as important ingredients to these brands. Um, And mission, obviously, social enterprise should have and is a big asset there because it provides a lot of that meaning I was talking about. So they have this higher-end mission from the get-go as part of their DNA. I guess to your second question about how not to look like you guilt people into something, that's actually something we also talk about in the book, which is we talk about the concept of unselling. Selling is not sexy. Selling is perceived as commercial. And I guess in the case of social enterprise, you know, Asking for money is not very sexy. It feels like charity and it, it might cheapen what you do. So, so my advice would actually be for social enterprise to focus and to deliver clearly a message that their services and their goods are very valuable. Okay, I give you an example. I, I just start discussing here with my little village in New York around trees. Trees get chopped here like crazy because people are afraid that the old trees in town will fall on their houses and all the new people moving in are so afraid that the first thing they do when they buy a house is to cut all these hundred plus year old trees and they plant nothing behind it except for a few decorative bushes they also live with this ideal of you know their children playing in the backyard which is all grass And so there is this charity now forming around, you know, let's get the trees back rather than begging for money and subsidies and, you know, you know, having people trying to push people to plant trees. We want to be very clear about trees actually provide energy saving. They provide health. And there's tons of studies around even mental health and how it's positively correlated to a green neighborhood. Uh, They're not just pretty things. And so I think in the same way, a social enterprise that really focuses on the value it provides, and the value can be beauty or it can be functional value, et cetera, but the value it provides um, is the way there. And I love these companies like, you know, Freitag that we talk about in the book or Patagonia uh, or TerraCycle um, that really make often good business and actually might have been born out of commerce but have developed into uh, almost or straight social enterprises. Uh, When you think about Not For Sale, which is another one on our uh, uh, podcast that we talk about, or Tom's uh, with their one for one. In fact, there's an interesting episode in the life of Patagonia, which is one of my absolute favorite brands that I studied in detail, where Yvonne Chouinard, the founder, thinks about what's the next step after his company has become bigger than he's ever imagined. And he's thinking about selling it. And if you know him, his company, if you've read the books, you you will know that his ambition was to, to sell the company and then 
put all the money he would get into a foundation. And fortunately, his advisors said, you know, Yvonne, you'll be able to do so much more good for so much longer and for generations to come and at a global scale if you remain an enterprise and make money that way but also spread the news that way and enable investment into all the things that you want to do, like building back dams and so on, then if you take the money out and become a charity, okay, it'll just dwindle away. And I think that might be true also for social enterprises that have an enterprising and value creation mindset versus a charity mindset. Yeah, definitely. And I think most of the people listening to this podcast um, certainly understand the extra value that a social enterprise can bring over a charity. JP, we're seeing a shift uh, towards purpose within business, and even multinational corporations are jumping on board. Big businesses are even spending millions of dollars on marketing and advertising to appear to care about trending issues. How can social enterprises rise above the hype and communicate to consumers that they truly exist to create social and environmental change? I think social enterprises that really mean it, that have it in their DNA, that really live their mission, have a huge leg up and a huge advantage over, let's call them for now, quote unquote, imitators and and kind of the commercials, the big commercial companies moving in and all talking about purpose and, and doing good as well. And that is this aspect of living it. It's the third aspect when I said mission, myth, and truth. Truth is the perceived authenticity by customers. And, and the perceived authenticity comes from living and living up to and putting your actions and your money uh, where your mission is. And I think that's where social enterprise has a big advantage. So, for example, Ben and Jerry's has been an activist when it comes to social justice in the U.S. for decades now. So when Ben and Jerry's uh, and literally the founders get arrested on the steps of Capitol Hill during the elections because they they protest against unjust legislation or um, conditions in the U.S., then nobody is surprised. It makes total sense. It's part of what endears this brand to its core audience, um, its apostles, if you like, um, the people who spread the word, as I said earlier. Contrast that with something that just happened a few weeks ago where Kraft Heinz Group, you know, the folks who do Velveeta and, you know, Heinz Ketchup and so on, went out in Washington during the government shutdown that you might have heard about in, in Australia as well and handed out um, in a special kind of pop-up store paper bags with a big craft and Heinz logo on it. And in the paper bag was obviously, as you can imagine, Velveeta cheese and Heinz ketchup and the other goods that this company makes. And they said, we're doing good. You know, these company, uh, these um, uh, government employees are laid off. Many of them don't have the means to just skip a paycheck, uh, as happens now in the government shutdown. So we're handing out free product. Well, there, some people, of course, thought it was great, but many people were very skeptical, uh, very, very skeptical that this would be a stunt 
that obviously with all this logo everywhere and, you know, the company itself blasting it on social media and making sure all the TV cameras are there, really just exploited these poor government workers rather than really doing good. And I, and I think that's where the difference is, you know, with the Ben & Jerry's that has lived its mission and has authenticated it uh, through its consistent actions over time and through what it does as an organization internally as well, has the credibility and has the right, you know, to stand for things like that, whereas uh, these quick adopters cannot. So I think that's one big advantage of social enterprise. And then I think the, the other way to defend is not to defend at all, but rather to collaborate um, and acknowledge that struggle for big companies and say, why don't we make this a win-win? Why don't we work together? But everyone has their place in it. And that's where I see, for example, social enterprise like TerraCycle uh, with their loop system now working across big companies, P&G, Unilever, Coca-Cola, Bayersdorf, Racket Bank, you name it, um, you know, and work um, on things like recyclable, um, in fact, reusable containers, whether it's for shampoo or for ice cream, um, instead of throwaway plastic, or they work um, on um, scaling ocean plastic now on, you know, head and shoulders and pantene and so on and so on, where the social enterprise can lend the credibility, the kind of independence, the DNA that has been proven over time, and the big company can lend kind of the scale, uh, the publicity certainly around it, um, and, and making it matter because, you know, it only matters all these things of recycling or avoiding even plastic matter if it's in big quantities. And Coca-Cola can certainly deliver those quantities of replaced bottles, etc. And so I think it can be a symbiotic, very interesting um, relationship that is valuable. Yeah, definitely. So who are some of the businesses with true social and environmental missions that you have come across who you see excelling at brand strategy and what can we learn from them? There's many. I mean, we, we talk about some of them in our book. I mean, some of our favorites, uh, Freitag, the Swiss bag uh, and by now suitcase wallet, you name it, brand that uses basically trash that doesn't decompose not biodegradable, which are uh, tarpaulin or tarps that are used on trucks, particularly in Europe, uh, as well as parts like seat belts, tires and tubes from um, bicycles and fashion them into bags. From the beginning, the DNA of that company was recontextualization and how do we preserve our resources and um, even this goes all the way through, not only by recontextualizing these materials, but also how they do it. Uh, so, you know, when they wash it, they use rainwater. Um, and uh, some of their products are, for example, compostation bags, etc., etc. They live it through and through, but they also have incredible design, incredible language, corporate identity, visual identity, sound identity, they're also incredible brand builders, and uh, it's a fantastic brand and doing good story. And the same applies for, you know, Patagonia, 
even in the B2B arena by now, they're, they're great companies. There's a company I stumbled over. It's called Rock Wool, and they make insulation material from rock, basically, that lasts longer, um, uh, that, uh, you know, ha it's non-toxic, uh, you know, 100% natural, basically. Um, so there, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on uh, across a very broad um, spectrum of categories. So JP, to finish off, what are some great books or podcasts that you'd recommend? Some really inspiring books are written by the people who make these brands. So I like the classics, you know, The Responsible Company, which was written by Yvon Chouinard, the founder of Patagonia, together with uh, Vincent Stanley, his nephew, who I interviewed um, on my podcast. And, you know, is just an incredible thinker when it comes to really thinking through the relationship between product, brand, and doing the right thing and organization, um, they're incredible considerate when it comes to that. So you really benefit from people who have thought about these things for a long time. Um, there is a book also about Freitag. It's called uh, Out of the Bag, and it's fascinating uh, and instructive from a brand design. They are designers, after all. It's one of the few companies, I guess, owned by graphic designers. They, they are designers, uh, sorry, industrial not only graphic designers, and uh, talk a lot about um, things even like the brand architecture or the brand language, how they found their own language, very distinctive language for the brand. Fascinating read. Yeah, some excellent recommendations there. And of course, uh, your book, JP, with Wolfgang Schaefer, Rethinking Prestige Branding, Secrets of the Uber Brands, um, I think is another great one that, that that all of our listeners out there should should get a copy of and read. JP, thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter. Thank you.